So we're going to be in First uh, Peter chapter 4 today, but I'm going to show you how these four things were not something the Moravians or any other amazing group in church history discovered. They are things that have always been there, and, and they're there for us to mine out and discover again today. So first of all, just, just for some setup um, in the book of First Peter, so uh, the context of the book is Peter's writing to scattered Christians all over the known Roman world. Uh, scattered throughout Pontus, it starts in the first three verses. Scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. That's how he starts his book. So he's writing to believers who've been pushed from the halls of power. Many of them have, have been a part of the dysphoria. They've been pushed out of Rome. They've been pushed out of their homes. And they find themselves in the complex reality of an empire that has no room for the claim of Christianity that Jesus Christ is Lord and Caesar is not. How many feel that squeeze in our generation? Uh, how many read Psalm 1 and 2? You saw it if you read your Bible reading. I was swept up this, this week. So Psalm 1 gives us this vision of, of two options. We can choose the way of the righteous, which is the way of wisdom, the way of God's word, or we can choose the way of the unrighteous, which is the rejection of God's wisdom and God's word. And then you fast forward to Psalm 2, where Psalm 1 paints the picture of what individuals choose. Psalm 2 shows what whole people groups choose when they rebel and reject against God and his word. There's a rage. There's not just a rebellion against God. There's a rage against God. How many are seeing that, feeling that in an increased measure? And so Peter's writing to, to a group who's disoriented. They feel, they feel isolated. They don't, they don't really, they're, they're uh, you, know, they're, they're, you know, what's our strategy? What's our play? And I love what Peter does to start his letter is he immediately tells them, whatever you're facing externally, the, the reality on the inside is that you've been chosen by God. You've been set apart, sanctified by the Holy Spirit, and you've been cleansed and washed by the blood of Jesus. He gives them a Trinitarian hope that is the remedy for all external shaking that can keep you in this age on into the age to come. Say it with me. I've been chosen by the Father. I've been set apart by the Holy Spirit, and I've been cleansed by the blood of Jesus. How many think those three are pretty good any day? that are true of us. We've been chosen by the Father, sanctified, set apart by the Holy Spirit for God, for the Son, for his purposes, and we've been cleansed by the blood of Jesus. And he goes on and he writes to them and he's like, guys, um, the, the only reason you were redeemed is because, again, back to the Moravians, they love the, the motif of Jesus as the Lamb of God. And in 1 Peter chapter 1, it says, you were redeemed from your empty way of life handed down to your forefathers with the blood of Jesus, the Lamb of God, who was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. So Peter steadies their heart and, and again reminds them of the great redemption. He's giving them a vision of Jesus. When you and I feel the shaking, when we feel the internal pressure, when we feel the, the reality of life, the reality of suffering, let me just tell you, God's forever remedy for a heart that feels off kilter, look again to your great salvation, Jesus Christ. How many have experienced that in your life? When all was shaking, you could at least look to Jesus, the unshakable one, who's loved us, who's chosen us, and who's redeemed us and claimed us as his own. 
And then he goes on, he says, you guys have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. For all men are like grass and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord endures forever. How many are thankful for that? And this is the word that was preached to you. He goes on and he, now he's moving from beyond individual identity. Now Peter starts speaking about corporate identity. And look what he speaks as he names the church's functional reality. As you come to him, 1 Peter 2, 4, the, the living stone rejected by man, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, say you also, like living stones are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So he's saying functionally, you all feel isolated, but every time the church gathers, guess what happens? A house for God's Holy Spirit is built. How many need to hear that today? Like when we gather, it's not just we're checking a religious box. It's not just I did my duty. I went to church on a holiday weekend, although good job and no shame to those who are streaming right now online. I love vacation. It's a God gift. It's a part of the good things of life. But when we gather, we're not just randomly gathering in some strange old, you know, different building. Literally what's happening is living stones who've been out in their work day and their work life and their school life and their family life and their friend life, when we gather, it's like these living stones are being compiled and built. It goes on to say, uh, on the chief cornerstone, Jesus. And every time we gather, there's an opportunity to be built into a spiritual house where God's presence can come close. He says, you are a chosen. And then he goes on to say, uh, um, through Jesus Christ, this, the scripture says that the stone the builder has become the cornerstone, and he goes on, and then he speaks four things about their identity as, of the church, and then we're going to get to the talk. This is all set up, darn it. But I don't have a lot of slides today, so hopefully we'll, we'll get through. I always say that, and we get through 10. Do you get it? Do you get that when believers gather, more is happening than just what we're aware of? The living stones are being built into a spiritual house so the Holy Spirit has a place to land so that the ethereal, theoretical presence of God becomes the manifest and the tangible presence of God. Did you know when you walked into this room, you had an opportunity in your spirit to say, I'm, I, I agree with what God has spoken in his word. I want to offer my, the living stone of my life. I want to place it so that we together can be built together so God can come close. And then he says in, in 1 Peter 2, 9, again, he's speaking identity over the scattered, isolated, what they feel, people of God, the pressure. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. That here's, here's the mission, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Did you know every believer has a mission as a chosen royal citizen of the kingdom of heaven? We get to declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness. What am I supposed to say? Speak about how he rescued you from darkness. Did you know that everyone in this room, if you're a believer, you have a testimony worth telling? How many have been rescued from darkness? How many are perpetually if we'll keep looking, I said in my, the email, this, uh, where did I say it? It was on some social media post. I forgot. A lot of content this week. I said it somewhere that my mentor says, Jesus doesn't just want to save you once. He wants to save you all the time if you keep relying on him. How many need a ever-present savior to continue to save you from you and from stupid choices, right? We need an ongoing savior. 
And so said, you're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praise of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And then he speaks a word about the tension of living in this age with all of the pressures, all of the poles of sin. He says, dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. How many have felt the war against your soul, the place of desire? And he says, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and praise your father or glorify your father in heaven. How many know that there is victory in the war for desire? And that victory is won on the battlefield of where you and I choose to lock our eyes and to keep them there. Did you know that? Part of why he's saying when you get together, you become the spiritual house, this holy priesthood that's offering spirit. You know why? Because God makes his throne, Psalm 22, on the praises of his people. And you know what? The greatest thing we need to do in this hour where we have 10 billion options is to say yes to becoming a people where Jesus is magnified and where he rehabituates our desires by getting a vision of who he really is, how good, how great, how glorious. Does that make sense? Rehabituate. It just means that where my heart used to desire other things, there's an environment, there's a people where I can, Psalm 16, verse 10 through 11, I can see the superior pleasures of knowing the one from whom all blessings flow, Jesus Christ. Why do we want to be a praying church, a praying community? It's in the midst of that environment of worship with the word and prayer where we actually set a place for God to land. And when he comes, he changes us not just once, but over and over and over and over again. How many know you and I in our homes are responsible for creating cultures that either create a hunger for the things of God or sap or diminish hunger for the things of God? Think right now in your home. Get, get, get very practical. Does your current lifestyle at home, the rhythms, the, 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 the TV, the, the things you're watching, listening, the things you're doing, is it habituating your heart? Is it, is, it, is, it, is it giving the Spirit a chance to form your desire for the things of God? Or is it sapping, watering down, and diminishing passion for the things of God? How many want to have hearts and homes and communities that it's the norm. It's not the norm by default, but by choice and the grace of God that we want to say, we want to create cultures in agreement with heaven that the things of God are perpetually declared and demonstrated so that our hearts can continue to be transformed with an ever-increasing likeness for the grace of God. How many want to see that? Cultures that, that are like, they, they cultivate desire for the things of God. Did you know we won't accidentally drift into that? I'm sorry, I have an urgent message today. I'm serious, I've been living in all week. There's such an urgency. I know the spirit of the age, like we don't feel the urgency all the time, but I'm telling you, the battle at the end of the age will be for the desire, the place of desire in the human heart. That's the battle, the battle, the battle, the battle is for what you love, for what you want, for what you crave, for what you desire, and who you want, who you love, and who you desire. So Peter's telling them there's this strategy. One of God's remedies is for us to live out of not just our individual identity, but our corporate identity. That when we gather, it's like building a house for the Holy Spirit to come and to transform us from the inside out. He goes on. Okay, now we're going to get to the passage finally. Almost. 
Then I love this. I love where, where he goes on, and, and you see Paul doing this all the time. Uh, and I wrote in my journal last night, it's, it's okay, I, I'm, I love Liam, I'm gonna give him a hug if he comes. Um, what you see the apostles doing all the time is that, they, that for the life of the believer, they're using the narrative arc of Jesus to, to give language to describe what it is to follow Jesus. What do I mean? So Jesus, full of glory, comes to earth. He descends. Everyone say descends. And in his earthly life, he chooses to obey his father, and it costs him. Everyone say cost him. And then he suffers. Then he dies. Then he's resurrected. And then he's ascended back to glory. You see the narrative arc. How many know you and I can trace the whole, our whole life in that narrative arc of Jesus? There's a descent. There's a humbling. There's a death. It doesn't have to be literal, but a death to yourself, to your sin, to something, that's adversity, suffering hits your family. But if you don't lose heart, death is not the end if you're a believer. Then there's a resurrection. He brings new life. Amen? Then there's an ascension that out of our true identity, Ephesians 2, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. But now, everyone say, but now. And because of his great love for us, God, who was rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. So that ascent, when we live out of our true identity right now, if you're a believer, you are seated with Jesus. Turn to your neighbor and say, you are seated with Jesus in the spirit right now. You may not feel like it, but it's true of you. Read your Bible. It's true of us. But that narrative arc, and so he goes, so I love Peter. And for, so we're not going to get to the top. We're going to get there. I want you to hear it because it's not some random verse that I pulled out of context. I want you to see Jesus, prayer, community, mission. It's always God's fort. It's always on his mind. And so it goes on to say, it says, for Christ, this is my, it's not my, it's one of my favorites of the Bible. I say it every week. I just love the Bible. It says in 1 Peter 3.18, I had to write a paper on this in college. All those years ago, I still remember it. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. Isn't that a good verse? For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. And watch what Peter does, and then we are going to get to at least two or three slides. So he died for sins. Watch the narrative arc. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit, through whom also he went and preached to the spirits in, in, in prison who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark is being built. This is when he's in Hades for three days. In it, only a few people were saved, eight in all through water, and this water now symbolizes baptism that saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience towards God. It saves you through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. Do you see what Peter just did? Christ died, descended, preached in Hades for three days. What do you think he's doing while he's dead? Stripping the prince of, come on, somebody, I'm going to start preaching now. This is one of the most amazing mysteries of, our theolo- of, of the doctrine. What's the, what, is the, what is the crucified son of God doing in Hades for three days before his father raises him? He's cleaning up shop is what he's doing. But according to 1 Peter 3.18 onward, he's preaching. He's declaring his triumph. 
He's showing his wounds. Look at that language, though. It saves you by the resurrection. Everyone say resurrection. And then he's seated at the right hand. So ascension, this is where Jesus currently is. Did you know Jesus currently is at the right hand of the Father with authorities, powers, and angels in submission to him? Psalm 2, if you read your Bible reading this week, one of our Psalms, what does it say? Even though the nations rage, rebel, and resist, they want to throw off God's word, God's wisdom, what is heaven's perspective to human rebellion? Psalm 2, verse 4, the one in heaven laughs. Ha! You can resist me, reject me, rebel against me all that you want, but I, and he goes on to say in verse 6 through 8, I have placed my son on an eternal, unshakable throne, and he cannot be cast off. So you see what Peter's doing. He died for sins. He descended into death. He preached the good news even to those who died during Noah's day. His father resurrected him. Now he's seated at the right hand with all authority, power, and submission under him. Do you think Peter has an idea of how to encourage the church that feels like everything around them is shaking? What is his remedy to steady their hearts? Jesus. Do you see that? Are you tracking? Are we, are we tracking? This is a lot of scripture. It's just in my heart, okay? But are you getting it? This is Peter's logic. You feel shaken, isolated, lonely. You don't feel like, you feel like, this, like the empire is squeezing you, trying to form you in its, its image. But what Peter does through all of the letter of 1 Peter is like, look again to Jesus. 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 He died. He descended. He was resurrected. He rose up. He's seated at the right hand. And guess what? As he is, 1 John 2, 6, so are you in this life, 1 John 4, 17. We follow the narrative arc of Jesus. His destiny is our destiny if we're in Christ. Isn't that good news? How many need to be reminded of the narrative arc of Jesus more than once? When I'm suffering, suffering's not the end. Suffering's inevitable. I read the end of Acts last night when I couldn't sleep. I love reading that, Acts 27 and 8, where, uh, where, where Paul has to get to Rome, but he has to have a shipwreck to get there. <laughs> and at every turn, opposition, right? Just read it. It's the best little, t- it's such a good two It's like I wanted them to make a movie about it. Some Hollywood star where he's on the boat. He's like, guys, don't. I promise God showed me the ship's going to be destroyed. But the people who are in charge of the money and the goods are like, no, we sail on. Uh, and it, every, every, the whole ship, this is uh, Tristan Harvey, shout out in Austria. I love you. I know they always stream and watch. This is where he says surfing is in the Bible, that they got to the shore on planks of wood. And, but then he goes, but here, why am I saying this? Because if you don't understand how to locate your story within the greater story of the narrative arc of Jesus, you'll get offended by, to, uh, by God and you'll be offended by others when it gets hard. Did you know it's going to get hard? Come on. Wake up. It's going to be hard. There's going to be suffering. It's going to be costly. But we're not building our own story, our story, when we repented and put our faith in Jesus and we went down into the waters of baptism and we were raised up when we put off the flesh and we were filled with the Spirit. We got grafted in and our spirit, 1, 1 Corinthians 6, was made one with the Spirit of Jesus. So his story is our story. So when it gets tough, what do we do? We don't look in and go, oh, we look up and out and say, Jesus, I know how your story ends, so my story is going to follow along your path if I don't lose heart and lose hope. The narrative arc of Jesus. Then he, this, this is why this makes so much sense. So look, what does Peter do next in 1 Peter 4? 
We're almost there. And we'll preach this message this morning next week. <laughs> Look what he says. I just, I'm trying to, so Jesus is the point today, if you didn't catch that. <laughs> and every day. Look what he says in 1 Peter 4. Therefore, arm yourselves also with the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. So he's like, so if you missed what he was saying, he comes right out and says it. Since Christ suffered in his body, amen, whoever suffers in their body, you should have the same attitude. Adopt the narrative arc of Jesus so that you'll no longer live the rest of your earthly life for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. How many could just go home with that one verse? How are you going to live out your life? according to the pattern of this world or according to the pattern of Jesus. So he gives them, he just says right out, hey, just let you, let make sense of your life, your hardship, your suffering through the narrative arc and through the lens of Jesus's own life. And then we come to our passage. The end of all things is near. Therefore be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you've received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do it as one speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do it with the strength God provides so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. The end of all things is near. What do we do? Have a sober mind. I I, I use this language. That's awake, alert, and attentive, where your mind is turned on and tuned in to the voice of God. Did you know that, especially with election year coming up, listen, one of the greatest things you can front load the coming year is to have a sober mind that is alert, awake, and attentive to the voice of God. Did you hear me? Did you know that the whole battle in our generation, especially with the social media, is that our minds are intoxicated by the spirit of the age. They are weighed down by the cares of this life. And, our, and then what we do, because it's so hard, we self-medicate so our, our minds aren't on. They're not attentive. They're not sharp to what God is saying and God has said. They're so weighed down. The only remedy we see as foreseeable to stay, to, to live is to self-indulge and intoxicate and just dull the pain. Can, I, can we be honest this morning? Peter offers an alternative. The end of all things is near. Church, your mind has to be awake, aware, and attentive to what God has said and is saying through his son, Jesus Christ, and through his word. The battle for the days we're walking in is whose mind in the midst of all the chaos can stay locked into the ultimate narrative, which is Jesus glorified in all of the earth, reigning and ruling, coming and making all things new, coming to bring justice and judgment to the earth. Did you know we cannot afford to have our minds lulled to sleep or intoxicated by all the various things that are pulling for our affection and attention? Is this landing on anybody this morning? Can you see how this might be something you and I might need to respond to God's invitation to have a mind that is sharp and locked in? 
How many have known what it is a how many have known what it is to have a mind that is asleep and that is intoxicated by the various streams of culture? Every hand has it. We've all experienced that. Peter's saying, in light of what time it is, guess what? The first thing we need to have a conversation about is how is your mind? Is it awake? Is it aware? And is it attentive? Is it awake? Is it aware and attentive? And look at these, the Greek words for alert. Look at this. Don't be sluggish, sleepy, distracted, or dismayed. Did I hit anybody there? I didn't get to suit. That's not, I didn't write it. Hello, anybody? Sluggish, sleepy, distracted, or dismayed? That, that's my everyday, that's like every day. Peter's like, you can't afford to do it. Because he goes on to say in verse 12, I'm not even going to get to it, there's fiery, fiery ordeals that have come and are coming. And if you don't have a mind that's sharp in the grace of God, renewed and filled with it, that's why we're doing a Bible reading, a simple one, a small one. We have to fill our hearts and minds and steep them in the scriptures, or we will be sluggish, weighed down, distracted, and dismayed. Whew. And look what the Greek word, what it means for sober mind. Don't be intoxicated. I love that language by the spirit of the age where you're swayed by the cultural winds and you're, you're influenced by the voices of culture instead of the voice of the good shepherd. How many need a mind alert and sober-minded? Hello. Did you know we don't have to guess how to get one? How do you get a mind that's aware, awake, attentive? What's the, the first slide? It starts, it says the word uh, Jesus. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Amen? Jesus, lock in, lock in, lock in. Uh, uh, this sounds intense, but listen, uh, it's an intense hour and it's only going to ratchet up. And I'm not a doomsday false prophet. It just is. And so for us to realize now is not the time to have an intoxicated, weighed down, worried, filled heart and mind. It's time to look again to Jesus, lock eyes with him, allow him, Romans 12, 1 through 2, to renew our minds so that 1 Corinthians 2, 16, you and I live out of the mind of Christ instead of the mind of fill in the blank. How many want to access what is available to us but is not inevitable? We can have the mind of Christ if we'll do it, if we'll go after it. And we put off. We need to be renewed. And look, why, look here's what I love. Now we're, we're almost there. We're almost there. Why, should I why do I need to know what time it is? The end of all things. Why do I need to be aware, attentive, and awake? So that you can pray. Do you see that? So that you can pray. How many know the mindset we bring into prayer is everything? The mindset we bring into the, to prayer is everything. Do we know who we're talking to? Do we know the one who bears the wounds still in his glorified body? How do I know? Thomas could stick his hand in his side. Do we know what's on his heart and on his mind? Do we know what he's done? Do we know the glory, the ins and outs of the gospels? Do we know the, his promises? Do we know his purposes? Do we know what he's spoken? Do we know what he's saying? The only way we'll, we'll, be, we'll be tuned into that is if our minds and our hearts are attentive and aware. And he, Peter's saying this, the reason why your mindset matters so much 
is because I want you to participate and partner with me in the place of prayer so that my purposes can flood the earth instead of the enemy's purposes. Did you see that one of the primary ways that the Moravians, back to the Moravians, they had a vision of Jesus and then prayer. They knew in order to participate in God's purposes, they needed prayer coverage so that something would actually happen. Do you see that? They needed prayer coverage. They needed to prepare the place, the people, the things that they were going to move out and the mission of God. It needed aerial support first before there was actual ground manifestation. And beloved, now is the time to have our minds sharp, attentive, tuned in, and turned on by the, by the grace of God, locked into Jesus and his word. Why? So that we can pray. This is my definition of prayer. I, maybe I'll write a book. I love it. Prayer, read it with me, is learning to respond to the initiating reach of God for relational enjoyment and empowered partnership in his kingdom for his glory and our good. So we want to respond by, by, by enjoying our relationship with him and then being empowered to partner with him. Prayer connects us to a person. Say that with me. Prayer connects us to a person to Jesus Christ. And at its core, I'll read it. Prayer is about relationship. The posture and privilege of prayer brings us in on what Jesus is saying, thinking, feeling, and wanting to do. In the gospels, Jesus told them right before the cross, keep awake, stay awake, be aware, watch always and pray. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. And this one-liner, I've been saying this for years, I can't get over it. In the Bible, prayer is the only thing we're called to do without ceasing for all people in every circumstance and to never give up doing it. Those are your references. You can screenshot it. Without ceasing for all people in every circumstance. And what Peter's telling us, if your mind is weighed down, if it's intoxicated by the spirit of the age, if it's distracted and dismayed, you're not going to realize what privilege it is to step into the place of prayer with God. You won't pray because you won't think it makes a difference. Anyone ever fought that lie? It won't make a difference. I prayed about it. Nothing happened. And Peter's like, oh, beloved, get a new mindset. More happens in that dialogue between you and God in the place of prayer than you'll ever understand. Prayer. Jesus prayer, and now community. This is worth doing so good. After we know what time it is, the end of all things, and after our minds are alert, attentive, sober, we're praying, and then what does he say? Above all, verse 8, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. He goes to community. How many think one of the most potent things the church can offer the world is a community committed to the long game love? Anybody? The covenant of love, that we're in it through thick and thin, through the ups and downs, through each other's sin and messiness. We're in it for the long game. A a community that's shaped and sustained by cross-shaped love. And I love it. What is usually the first thing that happens when the going gets tough? What do we usually do? Anyone? You hide. You cloister off. Look what Peter gives the church as a strategy. Step into love. Do you see it? You're going to want to isolate and resist. 
He's just telling us. He's telling the church, when the going gets tough, you're going to want to go to your corner and, and cut yourself off and isolate. But what does he say? Instead, offer love to those because love covers sin. Amen? And then what does he say? Instead of what, you're, what you feel in your own little desire to close yourself off, what does he say? Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Hospitality. You know what's in the word hospitality? Hospital. Become a place where the healing presence of God can touch the broken places of humanity. How many think the church needs hospitals in, in our generation and in our day? And be saying, at the end of all things is dear, tuned on, tuned in, a prayer culture, a Jesus culture. And then what is he saying? A, a culture that's built on love and covenant and commitment. A, a, a church and a community that's, that's committed to hospitality. Our arms, our hearts are open to receive broken and weary people who can be transformed by the gospel. And then in that welcome, what, is he, what does Peter see for the body? That in that space, every member of the body of Christ is activated. It's one of my favorite, for, I say it every week, and I say it four times a week. Each of you should use whatever gift you've received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. Peter doesn't have a vision for one man or one woman at the top doing all the work. He sees an entire body activated, using their gifts and serving each other. And he's saying, if, anyone's, if anyone speaks, speak as if you're speaking the very words of God. So we're speaking God's promises. We're speaking God's purposes. We're reminding, this is why we're doing community groups. We're reminding ourselves of who we are in Jesus, what God's plans and purposes are in Jesus what God has done and what God is doing, what God has said and what God is saying, discerning how he's moving and joining him. And then he ends, we serve each other with the strength God provides. I mean, this passage is worth more weight than almost any paragraph that I can find in the Bible. Five verses, verses seven through 11. The end of all things, so that you can pray. Sober minds, love hospitality, using your gifts, serving each other, and speaking God's word. How many think that's a pretty decent strategy? Jesus, prayer, community, mission. You're declaring his praises who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. And then he ends that many of us would maybe view it as a throwaway verse, like an, an ending to his main point, but I love the reason the church is meant to adopt these four things. He ends it with this so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. All things God may be praised through Jesus. So we see the Moravians were not all that original. They just took a play out of the Bible to become a community with Jesus at their center, a community of prayer, a community that loved and served each other and a community that thought 1 John 2.10 applied to them that our task is to declare his praises in the darkest places of the earth because he called us out of darkness. And I said this, I, I couldn't say it better. I, this, this paragraph's been with me for years. Jesus is the aim of our affection. He's the center of our attention and he's the only worthy recipient of our wholehearted allegiance. Like Zinzendorf said last week, I shared it, Jesus, only Jesus, all for Jesus. My question as I close this morning is how do you need to respond 
to this end time strategy of a vision of Jesus, prayer, community, and that mission to declare his praises in the darkest place. How is your mindset this morning? Is your mind weighed down by a billion things and you need God to renew your mind today? If that's you, just lift up your hand. I wanna pray for our minds this morning. God wouldn't have commanded it if it wasn't actually possible for us to live out the truth that the scriptures paint. Father, I wanna pray for our minds. I wanna pray for a profound healing right now. Just, I ask God where minds have been distracted and discouraged, they've been intoxicated by a thousand other things than the voice of God and the word of God and the truth of God. Lord, I pray in us, in just an outstretched hand right now, Holy Spirit, you would renew our minds in the truth I pray, Lord, we would put off our old mindset and put on the new attitude which is created to be just like Jesus. God, I pray that you would heal our minds where there's been trauma, where there's been areas and grooves of unhealthy worry, destructive thought patterns. Lord, lust, anything that's been clouding our vision of you in our minds, Lord, I'm asking that you would heal us in our minds. Why? So that we can pray so we can step into that place of relationship and partnership with you, agreeing with your will, your word, and your purposes on earth as it is in heaven. Number two, if you want God to baptize you with a fresh passion to step into the place of prayer, can you lift your hand? I just want to pray a spirit of prayer over our church. Anyone? You want God just to give you a new vision. Lord, I pray right now for the spirit of prayer to touch our church as we as I was reminded, we're, we're still in summer. As we're ending summer and entering fall, God, I pray in the name of Jesus, you would pour out the spirit of prayer on our church. I pray that we would step into that place of partnership with you without ceasing for all people in all circumstances and that we would never give up doing it. So God, I pray for strength in our prayer life. I pray that we would realize what a privilege it is to step into that place of partnering with you in prayer, praise, and petition. Number, two, number three, we're almost done. If you want God to heal your heart where you've not been able to enter into love and community and hospitality because of pain and brokenness, but you want God to give you a heart to open your heart again for community, can you raise your hand? I wanna pray for healing here. Anybody? Father, I pray right now that you would heal our hearts God, if we've been burned by people or if we've burned people, I pray that you would breathe on that, that place in our hearts that we would have a heart to pursue love that covers and a hospitality that, hospitality that opens and makes space for other people. God, I pray you would just heal the church, heal our spiritual family, that love and hospitality, we would step into it in the grace of God. And then lastly, you want God to activate the gifts and graces he's given you so that you can speak and serve in a way that brings glory to him and good to others. If you want just fresh power for service and for speaking God's word, could you just stand on your feet as we close? You want God to just supernaturally empower us to serve and to steward and to speak. Maybe just put your hand on your heart. <clears throat> 
Father, I pray right now that you would come with supernatural power over our church. God, I, I feel like a fool because I know so many of us have so many things, but my job is to just lift up your word and to call us into what Jesus is doing. And I pray, Lord, that you would pour out your Holy Spirit on every heart and every mind, that you would activate and anoint us for service, that, Lord, you would come and you would touch our lips and give us your word so that we can speak as if we're speaking your very words. And, Father, I pray that we would serve not in our own strength and our own flesh, but we would serve with the strength of God. So, Lord, let this Sunday, this Labor Day weekend, be a week where you do a profound work that we get to walk out this fall together. A vision of Jesus, a commitment to prayer, participation in community, and then power to live on mission in our everyday life. Lord, I thank you this is possible in the midst of the craziness and chaos so that in all things, God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever.